People Magazine once published a poll that surveyed attitudes toward various sins. Readers quantified how guilty they felt after committing different acts. Numbers were tabulated and different sins were each given a sin coefficient or a syndex. One meant blameless, 10 meant guilty to the max. Well, murder was considered the worst of the sins with a syndex of 9.84 on a scale of 1 to 10. Rape was next at 9.77. Other sinister sins, child abuse, 9.59, drug dealing, 8.83, adultery, 7.63. But on the other end of the sin spectrum, sins thought as benign were selfishness, 4.92, gossip, 4.1, jealousy, 4.08, lust, 3.65, and nude sunbathing, 2.76. According to the poll, vice and violence deserved the highest syndex, while sins of the heart came in lower. Yet in tonight's chapters, we're going to discover that God looks at sin differently, that God has his own syndex. In chapter 1, Paul analyzed the hideous sins of the heathen Romans. And while he did, most of us nodded in approval, did we not? As Paul picked apart their perversity. Some of us might have left last week feeling smug, a bit morally superior. And Paul senses our spiritual snobbishness. Our sin may be more sophisticated, our wickedness more well-bred, but we are just as guilty. Paul contends in chapters 2 and 3, that respectable sinners are just as culpable as reprobate sinners. You see, in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul, he sets up court. And God is both judge and prosecutor. In chapter 1, the heathen get brought to trial and sentenced accordingly. In chapter 2, it's now the hypocrite's turn. In chapter 3, the Hebrew, then all humanity are put on trial In the conclusion, both the unrighteous and the self-righteous end up guilty as charged. Romans chapter 2 begins, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Once there was a woman, she was racing to catch her flight. She had no time for lunch, so she grabbed a pack of cookies on the way to get on the plane. She was sitting in the aisle seat. A man was by the window, and the seat between them was empty. After the plane took off, the woman reached over into the empty seat, and she opened the package of cookies to eat one. Well, to her shock, the man also reached over and ate a cookie. She thought, how dare that guy eat one of my cookies? A few minutes later, she ate another cookie. Well, the man also took a cookie. She took one, he took one. Finally, just one cookie was left. The man reached for it. He broke it in half and gave half of it to the lady and ate half of it himself. 
She was furious. How dare him do such a thing? Well, as they exited the plane, she was rummaging through her purse looking for the claim ticket for her baggage. But guess what she found? Her cookies. The whole time she was condemning the man for eating her cookies, she was just as guilty of the exact same crime. Paul says to the hypocrite in us all, who are you to judge another when you practice the same things? Remember in chapter 1, Paul took us on a tour of Skid Rome. The street is lit, lit with neon signs and littered with broken glass. Police sirens scream in the middle of the night. Windows and doors are screened with burglar bars. Prostitutes walk the streets while derelicts lie in the gutter. Skid Rome is an awful place to be. But in chapter 2, we realize that we live closer to Skid Rome than we might have thought. For the same seed that blooms there lies just under the surface in our own hearts. The anger that causes you to shout a four-letter word, if nurtured, can pull a trigger and end a life. The lust that you allow to inflame can throw you into the bed with your neighbor or make you a customer on Skid Row. Paul's point is that we have no right to condemn the adulteress unless we've never lusted in our own hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 reads, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Notice both the flesh and the spirit can get filthy. You, you can become dirty on the inside or on the outside. Attitudes or actions can be evil. The consequences of a spiritual sin may not be as immediate or as felt as a sin of the flesh. You avoid the risk of venereal disease or perhaps you're able to keep your family intact. But though the fallout is lesser, the kernel is the same. It's the same thing. Before God, the seed and the deed are one. And what Paul is saying here is this means... Don't judge the deed if the seed is growing in your heart. Well, notice three times here in verse 1, Paul uses this term judge. The Greek word krino means to condemn or damn to hell. Never condemn a person to hell. That's not our call. But not all judgments are wrong. In Matthew 7, Jesus commands us to make certain judgments. He says, beware of false prophets. By their fruits, you will know them. Apparently, it's okay to judge for identification, just not for condemnation. All daddies here tonight, I want you to stay with me here for a minute. Imagine a young man on your doorstep wanting to take your daughter out on a date. Beer cans are in the bed of his pickup truck. He has a joint hanging out of his mouth. And there's a porno magazine folded up, sticking it out of his back pocket. I hope there is not a father in this room who isn't going to size this guy up and refuse to let his daughter get near him. At this point, it is a dad's job to judge. You don't need to condemn him to hell or even send him to hell. In fact, you can try to love him. You can share the Lord with him, in fact. 
Just don't you dare let your daughter get anywhere near this guy. You're not being judgmental. You're being discerning. And this is what Paul forbids here in verse 1. What he's forbidding is not discerning, but he's forbidding a holier-than-thou attitude. The idea that at the core of my being, I'm better or I'm more spiritual or more righteous than you. You see, the Bible teaches that we're all sinners by nature. At the core of our being, we all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. A self-righteous man who thinks he's more highly, thinks more highly of himself than he should, will be quick to judge others. Often to justify ourselves, we think of the person who's worse than us. Our goal is to make the other guy look bad so that we can look good. It's amazing how harsh I can be on others and how lenient I can be on myself. The hypocrite keeps a double standard. It's been said, faults are like headlights. The other guy's lights always seem more glaring than your own. Well, verse 2 tells us, But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. See, one of the reasons that God forbids us from judging is that you and I seldom know the whole story. Things are not always as they seem, are they? Thus, whenever we make a judgment from our limited perspective, we're capable of huge mistakes. Psalm 19, verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God alone knows the whole story and can make the proper call. When it comes to people, you do the loving and you let God do the judging. Well, verse 3, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? You know, sometimes we think we're the exception to the rule. Hey, God is going to judge everyone else but me. At least he's going to grade me on the curve. Don't be foolish. None of us will escape the judgment of God. He says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Here's a great verse for us. You need to remember this when you go to share your faith. Paul is saying that a person is more prone to repent and to turn to God once that person discovers how much God loves them. We're far more inclined to turn to God in response to his love than in response to a rebuke or a judgment. 1 John 4 verse 19 tells us we love him because he first loved us. I used to attend a church that tried to scare the hell out of you every week. I mean, fear prompted me to do just enough to try to avoid hell, but it never caused me to want to please God. Since then, I've discovered love is a far greater motivator. Holy desires aren't motivated by the horrors of hell as much as they are by the attractiveness of God. It's the goodness and forbearance and long-suffering of God that brings a man to repentance. Verse 5, But in accordance with our hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the, day of, in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The word translated hardness here is the Greek word sclerosis. We call the hardening of the arteries arterial sclerosis. And this can happen to us spiritually. We can get a hard heart. And when we do, bad things happen, Paul tells us. 
In the 1880s, a clerk at Wells Fargo Bank figured out a way to steal a silver dollar every day without getting caught. He'd bring the coins home and he would place them in a trunk up in his attic. This went on for years. Every day for 30 years, this man put one more silver dollar in his trunk. Finally, the trunk got so heavy that one night it broke through the boards of the ceiling above the man's bed. It killed him instantly when it hit him. And this is what Paul is saying can happen to you. A hard heart stores up God's wrath until one day the ceiling breaks and it all comes crashing down on you. Verse 6, who will render to each one according to his deeds? Eternal life, God will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, God's judgments are based on obedience, not good intentions and not favoritism. It's not who you are that matters, it's what you do. God will render to each one according to his deeds. Paul says, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or if you're Greek. Obey God and you can expect glory and honor and peace. Disobey God and you can expect wrath and tribulation. Verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. God judges based on the opportunities we've had. The light that we've received. Those who had the Bible will be judged according to the Bible. But those who lacked God's word won't be held responsible for what they never had. The pygmy in the Amazon who lives and dies, having never heard the word of God, will still die in their sins and be judged by God. They're guilty, but their judgment will be different than the person who lived their whole life hearing the gospel and never embraced those truths. Each of us will be judged by the light that we've received. Verse 13 explains, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Some folks lack access to God's word. But that doesn't mean that they are blind to God's will. See, God has declared enough of His will through a myriad of ways to hold all sinners accountable for their actions. Paul is saying that God reveals Himself to us in two different ways. Through divine law, which is the Bible, and through natural law. Verse 15 lists three components of natural law. First is the innate sense of right and wrong. 
Paul calls this the law written in their hearts. Every person is born with the law written in their heart. There's a sense of right and wrong. It gets developed over time and through exposure. But there's a sense of that within each person's heart. Second is their conscience also bearing witness. Every person is also born with a conscience. It's part of the natural law. There's an inner policeman who enforces right and wrong. And then third, all societies develop a moral consensus. Paul puts it, between themselves, their thoughts accusing or excusing. In other words, there is an agreed-on morality that forms through reason and logic, through human interaction. All human beings, whether they've ever been exposed to divine law or not, have a sense of right and wrong, a conscience, and they're privy to a moral consensus. The founders of the United States of America spoke often of natural law and of inalienable rights. They understood that humans are created as moral beings and that even without the Christian scriptures, we all possess an innate knowledge of good and evil. And it's upon this that God will judge us. The Roman philosopher Plutarch was once asked, who shall govern the governor? He replied, the law, not written on papyrus rolls or wooden tablets, but his own reason within the soul, which perpetually dwells with him and guards him and never leaves his soul void of leadership. In other words, there is a law within every human being. And tragically, all humans have broken that law. They have known to do right and have instead done wrong. Who has always done what they knew to be right in every situation? No one. And that's why every man needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. For none of us can stand on our own. He says, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. We'll be judged by the opportunities that we were given, but one day that judgment will be public and open for all to see. All the secrets of men will be brought into the light of day. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. There are no secrets with God. This is why we all need the gospel of Jesus. I'll never forget the time we were at the Braves game. Me and Nick, we were standing there. We had good seats along the third baseline. and It was toward the end of the year. It was in the fall season, and my allergies had started acting up. You know, the fall pollen and all had taken in effect. And, and so I was down there standing there with my, my son by my side, and I was working my nose, you know, like this because it, my nose was running. And I'm kind of working my nose like this. And all of a sudden... Just kind of looked up at the big old matrix board out there in center field. And there was Pastor Sandy picking his nose right there. One day, every embarrassing thing. One day, all those sins, not under the blood of Jesus, let's, let's qualify it. Not under the blood of Jesus are going to be exposed for all to see. I read of a lady from Michigan vacationing in sunny Florida 
the gal wanted to do some nude sunbathing. Now remember on the syndex, that's not a biggie. That's only 2.76. And so she found what she thought was a secluded spot on the hotel's roof. And in minutes, the manager was standing by her side, insisting that she put her clothes on. She thought no one could see her, but she had actually stretched out on the dining room skylight. (laughs) All of a sudden, that nude sunbathing climbed up on the syndex. See, here's a warning that you thought. You thought this was no big deal, but actually to God it was. There's, there's going to be all kinds of things that you thought were no big deal. But, but one day, you're going to realize it was. If you go to court with God, your life will be naked and open for all to see. That's not what you want to do. You know, if you don't want all your dirty laundry hung out to dry one day, you need to, to work out a plea with the lawyer. You need to cop a plea and settle your case out of court. There's one alternative. There's one way to do that. And that's our advocate, Jesus Christ. He's the one who can negotiate forgiveness and can keep you from that kind of embarrassment. Well, verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest or rely on the law and make your boast in God. Now, in chapter 1, Paul prosecuted the heathen. In the first half of chapter 2, he's taken on the hypocrite Now in verse 17, it's the Hebrews' turn to stand before the judge. You know, the Old Testament declared that the Jews were God's chosen people. They had a proud heritage. But they let their heritage go to their head. They assumed that because they were Jews, they were exempt from God's judgment. Jewish tradition said that Abraham sat at hell's gate just to keep Jews out regardless of how they lived. Trypho, a first century Jewish Jew wrote, They who are the seed of Abraham according to the flesh shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient towards God, share in the eternal kingdom. In other words, it didn't matter what a Jew did. Just because he was a Jew, he would be in God's kingdom. The Hebrews were brimming with this false confidence. See, here's what the Jews had overlooked. The Bible teaches that the greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. Rather than exempt from judgment, because of their blessings, they would be due a stricter judgment. See, Paul continues to enumerate their advantages in verse 18. He says, And they know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Here was the Hebrews' great advantage. They were the caretakers of the Scriptures. They wrote the Bible. God wrote it through them. They wrote the Bible. They read the Bible. They copied the Bible. They studied the Bible. They even taught the Bible. They just failed to obey the Bible. That's the problem. Instructed in verse 18 is the Greek word katecheo, from which we get our English word catechism. It means to teach by repetition. Scripture was drilled into the heads of the Jews, but it never penetrated their hearts. See, Jewish synagogues were full of the same type of folks who sit in our churches today. They're going to miss heaven by 18 inches 
For the word of God they know in their heads hasn't yet worked its way those 18 inches down to their hearts. Verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? The Jews weren't obeying God's law, certainly not its intent. But they eased their conscience by teaching the law. You know, the joke in college was if you can't make it in the business world, you ended up a professor in the business college. In other words, those who can do, those who can't teach. Well, the Jews were zealous teachers, but they were horrible doers. Paul asked them in verse 22. He says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You know, they were very proud of the fact that they were done with idolatry. They hated idols. Seventy years of captivity in Babylon had cured the Jews of their idolatry. And when the Jews returned to their land, they hated idolatry. You know, an idol robbed God of his glory and his preeminence. And yet Paul here says to the Jews, hey, you've ripped God off in more subtle ways. And we too can rob God, can't we? You remember Malachi chapter 3 verse 8 asks, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. The unwillingness to give to God a tenth of your income is nothing less than stealing from God. In the Bible, the first fruits, the first 10% of what a person made or harvested was considered God's possession. To keep it for yourself was nothing less than stealing from God. Verse 23, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Paul quotes Isaiah 52 verse 5. God intended for the Jews to be a light to the Gentiles. Instead, the Jews' hypocrisy were a hindrance to them. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, here's another Jewish assumption. That circumcision alone made them right with God. A Jewish scholar once wrote, Our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see hell. The Jewish Midrash put it this way, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. The Jews felt safe. They felt spiritually secure because their male babies were circumcised on the eighth day. And yet Paul reminds them that circumcision is just a symbol. What matters to God is one's heart. And if you're a lawbreaker at heart, then circumcision is worthless to you. And you know, there are Christians who make the same mistake. They substitute symbol For substance, they substitute the replica for the reality. People think that just because they were baptized or just because they take communion or that they worship on a certain day of the week or that they've joined a specific church, that they're now acceptable before God. They're good with God because they've done this or that. Charles Hodge once wrote, Whenever true Christianity declines, there is a tendency to lay undue stress on external rights. 
In other words, ritual and tradition are a cover-up for what's lacking in their hearts. Understand, with God, form never replaces faith. But faith can override the lack of form. Notice what he says next. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? This is, this is a wild thought. In other words, an uncircumcised, pig-eating, Sabbath-working Gentile who trusts God can end up more acceptable to him than the orthodox, kosher, circumcised Jew. For pleasing God is about faith, not form. It's about honesty and a true heart toward God, not religious, religion. He says, and will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, that is the Jews, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. In other words, it's possible that a Gentile with a pure heart will judge Jews who played the hypocrite. Yes, it's possible. He says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. Wow. To the Jews, this was a two-by-four right between the eyes. Paul rattles them. They had put their confidence in their fleshly circumcision, but Paul tells them that the true family of God are the humble and the circumcised of heart. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, God made a promise to Israel. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart to love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Physical circumcision had always been just the symbol of a deeper cut, the removal of the sin nature. You know, in a sense, we need our wings clipped. You know, if you're going to domesticate a duck, you've got to clip its wings, don't you? Or at the first hint of winter, that duck is going to fly south. And likewise, we are all prone to go south on God. Our tendency is to fly the coop and run from God. Well, this propensity needs to be clipped. It needs to be cut off. A genuine child of God, a person whom Paul would call a true Jew, has experienced spiritual surgery. They've had their hearts circumcised. Or Jesus would put it, they've been born again. The Holy Spirit replaces our calloused heart with a caring heart. Love replaces lust. Being a Christian is not the work of a scalpel, but the work of the Spirit in our hearts. Well, Romans 3 begins. What advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? And this is the argument you would expect from a Jew who just finished reading chapter one or chapter two. In other words, if being a Jew and being circumcised doesn't make you right with God, then is there any benefit to be a Hebrew? Paul answers, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. The word oracle refers to a divinely inspired message. In other words, the advantage of being a Jew was their access to the Scriptures. 
having God's word as their national treasure, spared the Jews many a pitfall common among the pagan nations. There's a, there's a fascinating book. It's called None of These Diseases. In it, Dr. S.I. McMillan describes how that many of the Old Testament laws helped the Jews avoid various diseases down through their history. For example, in the Middle Ages, when the bubonic plague swept across Europe, the one group largely unaffected were the Jews. Their dietary and their hygiene, hygienic laws prohibited the deadly disease from spreading through the Jewish community. It was just one example of how access to the Word of God and the laws of God protected them and kept them safe over the centuries. Verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Now here's another argument that Paul anticipates. If we're saved by God's faithfulness, not our own, then if a person isn't saved, does that mean that God has been unfaithful? And Paul answers, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. For as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. On occasion, someone will complain, Pastor Sandy, I'm struggling with sin, but God refuses to deliver me. I really want his help, but man, it's just not working for me. Well, whenever I hear that complaint, I have a choice to make. God has promised to do his part if we do our part. So if it's not happening, then who's dropping the ball? I choose you. Either you're a liar or God's a liar. And quite frankly, I'm siding with God. As Paul put it, let God be true, but every man a liar. I would suggest that you need to take another look at you. He says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And I speak as a man. Paul, Paul does this at times. He resorts to silly arguments to get down on the level of silly men to answer their questions. And here's an example. When man sins, God judges righteously. So some smart aleck might ask, hey, why shouldn't we sin then? If our sin puts God's righteousness on display, then don't we do God a favor by sinning? It's a silly, stupid argument that Paul is using. But remember, he's dealing with silly, stupid human beings. And he answers, certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Here's Paul's answer. Even though God displays his glory and righteousness in the judgment of our sin, you and I are still responsible for the deeds that we do. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. In fact, each of us, Jew and Gentile, is just as accountable before God as the next guy. He says, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Everyone is accountable before God. This has been Paul's point for three chapters now. The heathen, then the hypocrite. Then the Hebrews, Jews and Greeks, all are sinners and deserving of God's wrath. 
We need to add another verse to the familiar Sunday school jingle. Red and yellow, black and white. We're all sinners in his sight. We all are under sin. The phrase in verse 9, under sin, hupo harmatia, means under the power or the sway or the domination of sin. See, man's problem is not just that we've sinned, but that we're controlled by sin, that we are mastered by sin. Outside of Christ, this is mankind's basic instinct. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Of the 100 billion humans who have walked this planet, there is only one person who has done right in God's eyes, and his name is Jesus Christ. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Did you hear about Ringo the Duck? He made his home in the city park in Toronto, Canada. Poor Ringo poked his bill where it didn't belong one day. He got it stuck in a Coca-Cola can. He couldn't eat. This went on for days. Ringo the Duck was starving. A rescue was launched. Park officials tried to lure him in with food. Champion duck callers were brought in. But Ringo mistook all of their efforts to help as threats. And he ran from the very people who were trying to save him. And this has been man's reaction to God. God loves you very much. God sees that you're starving spiritually and he wants to help you. But you keep running from him. You keep trying to avoid him when all he wants to do is help you. He says they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. The Greek word unprofitable was used to describe spoiled milk. God looks at the combined efforts of all of humanity and says we stink. There is none who does good. No, not one. There is none. There is none. There is none who does good, he says. Paul shoots us down with the none gun. None, none, none. Verse 13 describes humanity. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their tongues, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Paul starts with our mouth here and the venom venom spewed out by our tongues. Then he goes to our feet. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In other words, we're sinful from head to toe, from tongue to toe. Verse 16, destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And with that, case closed. God has rendered a guilty verdict on all mankind. Once a man was asked by some kids to take their picture, you know, he pulled out his phone, he snapped a photo. But what he showed the kids as their picture was actually a verse of the Bible that he had on his phone. He actually opened his Bible and he pointed to chapter 3, verse 10, and said, this is your picture. There is none righteous. There's none. This is, true. this is truly our picture in God's eyes. Verse 19. For now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. 
Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. See, the Jews mistakenly assumed that they could be made right with God by adhering to the law. And folks today make the same mistake. They think that they can earn God's favor by their own righteous deeds. Not so. The law was never intended to save us, but to show us our sin. That was his intention. The proud Jews boasted of their piety, but the law was intended to shut them up. Reminds me of the World Book Encyclopedias my dad bought when we were kids. Bought them from one of those door-to-door salesmen. Those encyclopedias were our ancient Google. Any debate that erupted at the dinner table ended up getting resolved by those world books. You know, we'd, we'd, what's the capital of Panama? Somebody would have an idea. And, well, wait, when this dinner's over, we're going to find out in the world book. It's kind of how we do it. And this was the purpose of the law, the law of Moses. It was the encyclopedia. It was the referee. It was the world book. It decided what was right and wrong. It showed man the error of his ways. Think of the law as an x-ray. An x-ray doesn't heal the bone. It only detects if it's broken. And likewise, the law didn't heal or save. It was never intended to. It only detected the fracture in our relationship with God. It pointed out our need. Did you hear the pastor who told his congregation, he says, there's only one perfect man, and his name is Jesus. The man in the back, he raised his hand. The pastor ignored him. Before long, he was waving his hand. Finally, the pastor asked, he said, don't tell me you think you're perfect. The man said, no, but I know someone who is. He said, who's that? The pastor asked him. The fellow replied, my wife's first husband. The truth is, is that not one of us will ever be perfect. Look down at verse 23. Look down in your Bibles at verse 23. For Paul sums it all up. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you see that? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Hawaiian Islands are roughly 2,000 miles from Los Angeles. Yet suppose you and I... An Olympic champion long jumper, Jeff Henderson, decided to jump from L.A. to Honolulu. Jeff jumps first, and he soars nearly 30 feet. Big jump. You're next, and you jump 10 feet. A respectable effort, 10 feet. I'm last, and I cleared three feet. I had a pizza before I jumped. Well, Jeff did better than you, and you did better than me. But wouldn't you agree, in light of 2,000 miles, none of us were even close. We weren't even close enough to brag. And the same is true when it comes to God's glory. You might be better than me, and I might be more righteous than the next guy, but none of us stack up before God. Here's Paul's answer. Up against God, we all fall short. Or as another translation puts it, we have all come in last. In the Olympics of righteousness, Jesus wins and everyone else is tied for dead last. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets 
even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here we are introduced to something truly, truly mind-boggling. A righteousness apart from the law. What? A righteousness apart from the law. In other words, God has struck a deal with our attorney Jesus to settle our case out of court. You don't want to go to trial with the evidence that's stacked against you. Trust me. Chapter 3 contains enough to bury you. But there is a plea bargain on the table. You aren't good enough to fabricate your own righteousness, but there is a righteousness apart from the law that has nothing to do with your performance. It's a gift. It's by grace. It's paid by Jesus, and it's received by faith. Paul explains it in verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word justified sounds sounds out its meaning, really. It means just as if I'd never sinned. Even though you're guilty, God is willing to treat you as if you're innocent. In 1986, the U.S. Congress enacted the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act that requires hospitals to treat an emergency patient as if they had the wherewithal to pay, even though they don't. In essence, this is what the Bible means by the term justification. God doesn't ignore that you're bankrupt spiritually. He knows that. He sees our sin. He knows we can't afford His treatment. Yet it doesn't stop Him from applying in any way. For He justifies us freely, literally, without a cause. We also have the redemption that is in Christ. The idea behind this word came from the slave markets. When a man purchased a slave in order to set him free, he was redeemed. His debts were paid in full. He was a free man. Start a new life. You and I become free from our past sins to start a new life in Christ Jesus. God justifies us freely. He redeems us in Christ whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. You can trace the word propitiation back to its Hebrew origin and you'll find that it referenced the mercy seat. That gold lid that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark rested in the Holy of Holies. It was God's throne on earth. Inside the Ark was the law. Over the Ark was God's glory. And thus how could a sinful man come to a holy God, especially after breaking his law? His glory demanded judgment. But God put a lid on the law. A blood-stained mercy seat became the meeting place between God and man. Our debt was paid right there. Atonement was made. And at the very place that cried out for judgment, God brought mercy. The word propitiation means a place of mercy. And today Jesus has become our mercy seat. At the very place our sin was judged, the cross, God applied the blood and extended mercy. Jesus put a lid on the law. He fulfills God's glory and at the same time extends His mercy. And I marvel at what Paul says next. Because in His forbearance, 
God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness. Throughout history, God's righteousness had cried out for sin to be judged, but God waited. He passed over sin until the day when His Son took our sin on His shoulders and paid its price. Today, Jesus is our propitiation, our place of mercy. He's the only place where you and I can find mercy. And all this has happened so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I love the phrase just and the justifier. God loves you, but he can't bend the rules. The judge can't fudge. God has said the wages of sin is death. Thus Jesus died to pacify God's justice and at the same time satisfy God's mercy. In other words, the cross enabled God to save face and save us simultaneously. The cross earned both our salvation and at the same time God's justice, His vindication, His righteous punishment against sin. It makes God both just and the justifier. Well, where is boasting then? It is excluded. But what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The legalist boasts he sees salvation as a prize, but justification by faith nullifies our pride. You can't take credit for what Jesus paid when Jesus paid it all. You can't. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. All men are saved the same way, by grace through faith. And this means there's no room for pride, no room for prejudice. Both Jew and Gentile come to God through Jesus. Finally, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, I love the light that Max Lucado shines on this verse. He says, faith causes us to be what the law truly wants. We're given grace, but then we are driven by grace. Grace fuels our engine. For when you understand how much God loves you, then you'll want to love Him in return. You'll want to please Him. Hey, I can testify I've experienced far greater purity by resting on God's grace than I ever achieved on my own grit and discipline. Willpower has been no match for God's power. The key to an abundant life is living by grace.